Our scripture today comes from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when and I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is God's word for us. Good morning. One of my favorite sounds this morning was when Mike was about to come up here to read the word of God, and I heard books opening. You know, Bibles, pages were flipping. It's really sweet to be a part of a church that loves the word of God. If I haven't met you, I'm Quinn Cools. I work here, um, Kingsway, with the youth uh, in a number of capacities. In April, my family traveled out to Portland, Oregon, uh, to finish up some grad work that I was doing with Western Seminary. And we'd arranged for me to travel on one day and for my wife and our two children, Addison and Benjamin, to fly a few days later with Kelsey's parents. Um, and I wanted to share the excitement of this upcoming trip with my daughter, Addison, who's three. And so I told her about how she would soon be flying on an airplane, um, that she'd be able to find daddy in Oregon. And she had a lot of curious excitement about the whole trip. Um, she 
would ask a lot of questions over the weeks leading up to it, but mostly she kept asking if she would fly on the airplane, as she calls it, today, or if she would find me in Oregon today. And I would say, no, not today, but soon. Um, Not now, but soon. Not this hour, but soon, if you will. And then one day, mommy packed up the bags, drove to the airport, and together they boarded the airplane to go to Oregon to see daddy. You might say that the time had come, the hour had come. Jesus used this phrase throughout his earthly ministry, um, and especially in the book of John as we've been studying it. Let me show you a few examples. In John 2 verse 4, it records that Jesus was at the wedding at Cana, which was kind of the beginning of his public ministry, and he said, my hour has not yet come, when talking to his mother In John 7, verses 6 through 8, um, it records Jesus giving his reason for not attending a Jewish feast, saying, for my time has yet not fully come. And there's several times when John, the author of this book, uh, provides his own commentary on Jesus' ministry, and he says, John 7, verse 30, no one laid hands on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, no one arrested Jesus as he taught at the temple because his hour had not yet come come. Now, just like I had told Addison, the time had not come, the hour had not come, but now we come to chapter 12 and something changes. Here, Jesus says the hour has come. And my question for us this morning is the hour for what? That's what we're going to look at in this passage. John 12 verses 20 through 36 was written for us to see and savor this truth, this big idea The hour has come for the glory of the Son of Man to be revealed, displayed, and magnified in the cross of Christ. If you're taking notes, you can write down this big idea because it'll help guide us through three points that I'm going to be teaching on this morning. The hour has come for the glory of the Son of Man to be revealed, displayed, and magnified in the cross of Christ. If you were here two weeks ago, you would have um, been here when Matthew was teaching from John 11, and there's a part of that passage where it talks about how many of the Jews believed in Jesus, and some of them went to the Pharisees and told Jesus, uh, told of what Jesus had done, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together, and they said, what should we do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And there's obviously a little bit of a a natural arrogance to that statement, but it's quickly illustrated in the opening verses of our text today as even more people begin to seek Jesus. Look at verses 20 through 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. These seekers may have been ethnic Jews who were a part of the dispersion and they, they were, you know, in other places of the world, not in Israel. Um, or they could have been um, Greeks who had in some way converted to Judaism. But the point here is that it appears that Jesus' following is only increasing. And they come to Philip and he and Andrew go to Jesus and share their request. And I, and I don't want us to miss the simplicity of this request. We wish to see Jesus. What do you want this morning? Do you wish to see Jesus? Do you remember what Moses says when he experiences the burning bush in Exodus 3? 
Scripture records that Moses said, I will turn aside to this great sight to see why the bush is not burned. I want us to come into this morning expecting to see and to savor a glorious thing because God is beginning to reveal right here more and more of the glory of the Son of Man. And along with each of these Greeks, let's say this morning, we wish to see Jesus. So let's look at our first point this morning. Point number one, the glory of the Son of Man is revealed in his death and resurrection that we share with him. This comes from verses 20 through 26, and I'm going to start at verse 23, where Jesus gives us the statement that organizes this text for us today. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Greeks present may not have understood the shift of what Jesus was saying, from saying the hour has not yet come to the hour has definitively come. But those who had been following him for some time, certainly the disciples, would have known this and understood it. And there's something powerful here in the implication of who Jesus is teaching. To whom does he reveal this coming glory that will be revealed? An audience of Jews and Greeks, of ethnic believers of the Old Covenant and Gentiles. The Gentiles who would be grafted into the New Covenant. So let's consider his answer to their seeking. Verse 24, Jesus uses a common phrase in his ministry as a a rabbi, as a teacher. Truly, truly, I say to you, and what follows is what he means to emphasize, what we should lean into and listen up for. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus was known for teaching in parables and other figures of speech. Jesus elsewhere describes faith as the size of a mustard seed. And so here he also compares something else to a seed. What what is it? When a farmer grows wheat, he casts this grain into the ground to be buried in the earth. When it falls into the earth and dies, so to speak, it remains alone, but If it dies, Jesus says, it will bear much fruit. What in the world is he talking about? Well, for us, knowing the rest of the story, having the whole book of John, uh, as we read to the end of John's record, we can easily see what Jesus is pointing to here, his own death and resurrection. That very same week that he's teaching these things, just a few days from now for him, Jesus will be betrayed and unjustly tried and put to death. He will be the one who falls into the earth and dies. Yet he describes this as a revelation about the glory, the glory of the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ. And through this illustration, he shows that in his own death, like the germination of a grain of wheat, he will rise and bear much fruit. But there's even more to what Jesus is saying here. In verse 25, he continues, whoever loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. From the whole story of God's incarnation in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, we can see that he loved us so much that he was willing to give up his own life, that whoever would trust and follow him would be able to experience eternal life. Consider that my, my paraphrase of John 3.16. 
So he's talking about the glory of the cross, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But, but I think there's also something more in view here. I think he has us in view. And you'll see this as the coming verses describe what Jesus is getting at. Consider that he's talking about you as I read Jesus' words from this verse in 20, uh, verse 24. Consider yourself as the grain of wheat. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So let me ask you, do you love your life? Allow me to illustrate this. Maybe, maybe we think in um, the American dream, maybe this would be an example. Um, someone retires, builds a dream home in South Florida, and spends their days fishing and relaxing on a lawn chair. We might say that that person is living their best life. Or maybe after high school, a young person leaves home with their boyfriend or girlfriend to avoid the constraints of family pressure so they can live the life that they really want to live, to live their best life. And, and, and maybe those examples are a little bit extreme. <clears throat> maybe you can't afford to build your dream home or you're not up for uprooting everything right now, but you use your time and your energy and your resources Everything that you have at your disposal right now, for what? For you? We use these things to make us happy. We all do it, from binge-watching TV shows to buying a new car that we don't need to having the latest model iPhone. If you're a young person, it might extend to the mind-numbing hours on social media or video games. You name it, we do it. And I would ask what Jesus asks, do you love your life? I think we're busying ourselves at a dizzying pace of trying to make ourselves happy, trying to love our life here and now in many cases. And Jesus warns us right here, it's not about living your best life, friends. It's, it's that he says, whoever loses his life, actually, whoever loves his life actually loses it. And continuing in verse 25, he says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What in the world does that mean? Well, he explains, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Jesus has something more in view than temporary pleasure and personal pleasure seeking. Simply put, he's not calling us to live our quote unquote best life. You're called to serve and follow Jesus. And don't get me wrong. That's not drudgery. That's a joy, but it's a serious joy. To follow Jesus is to know what Jesus teaches and then to do it, to put off sinful, self-seeking, self-serving, pleasure-seeking behaviors, and to put on Christ-magnifying behaviors. Our authentic belief in Jesus is revealed in how we no longer serve ourselves. We serve Jesus. We no longer follow ourselves. We follow Jesus. And we die to ourselves like Jesus died. And we rise to new life like Jesus rose from the grave. God does not want the grain of wheat that is your life to remain alone. 
He means for you to bear fruit. He has fruitful labor for us, friends. He invites us into this glorious thing, an invitation into partnership with him. And he promises his presence goes with us and that God will honor us on this path of obedience. This is no drudgery. This is joy, but it's a serious joy. Are we willing to serve and follow Jesus? We see in this first section in verses 20 through 26, our first point that the glory of the son of man is revealed in his death and resurrection that we share with him. And in verses 27 through 33, we see this glory displayed in Jesus' relationship to the Father. This is point number two. The glory of the Son of Man is displayed in his submission to the Father and his provision of salvation. The glory of the Son of Man is displayed in his submission to the Father and his provision of salvation. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This teaching takes place maybe a day or a couple of days after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Which means that in only a few days from now, he will be praying in the garden. That terrible, terrible night. Do you remember what he prays there in Matthew 26, verse 39? It records it this way. Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But not what I will, but what you will. And in the same way here, Jesus expresses what he is feeling. And he considers two alternatives. On the one hand, he wants to be delivered from this terrible, terrible thing. But on the other hand, he remembers something and reminds himself of something and he reminds his hearers of something, of this truth, that it is for this purpose. It is for this purpose that I've come to this hour. Y'all, we have to consider the humility of Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 verses 6 through 8. Maybe there's, maybe there's no better passage that describes Christ's humility. That he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to, held, to be held onto. But he emptied himself. And he, and he became a man taking on the form of a servant. Being born into the likeness of men. And being, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the humility of Jesus. I was thinking about that this week as I was preparing this message. Certainly the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus was necessary. The idea that Jesus stood in our place. He took the penalty for our sin. That is absolutely necessary given you know, God's holiness and righteousness. Yet consider the humility of Jesus that he gave his life up willingly. Can you see how the glory of the son of man is displayed in his submission to the father? Because of Jesus' submission to the father's will, we now are invited into relationship with him, into the father, into the family of God, into his salvation that he's offering to the entire world. God's sovereign plan of salvation has been in the works for hundreds, even thousands of years And now the time has come. He concludes this in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. 
The time has now come. And so God says, I will glorify my name. Think about the many times that he's already glorified his name. Let's just hit on a few. Jesus delivered Noah and his family on the ark. Jesus delivered the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. He delivered them to the promised land. You you could go through the whole story of scripture, all of the Old Testament, and come up with time over and over and over again. God delivered, God delivered, God delivered. The point is clear. God is to be glorified for he is good and he's good to his people. He delivers his people. So the father rightly says, I've glorified my name, but he, but he says something else here. He says, I will glorify it again. And when he's going to glorify it again, this is not like the times before. The times before were just a shadow of this moment of glory. And the crowd, it seems, didn't understand this voice that was speaking back to Jesus. In verse 29, it says that some thought that it had thundered and others thought that maybe it was an angel. But Jesus gives us the proper interpretation in verse 30. He says that Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Do you remember what, the, what, the, what Jesus says, what God says to the serpent deceiver back in Genesis 3.15? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians refer to this as the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the first promise of our coming salvation. Yes, there would be consequences, enmity for our sin. Yes, there would be terrible trouble without and trouble within. But Adam and Eve were present for more than just a statement about the consequences of their actions. They were present for the first presentation of the gospel. They got to hear the first message of good news that the woman will have an offspring that will battle the deceiver. And although Satan will strike at his heel, he will crush the head of the serpent. In his classic tale, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis gives us a great illustration for this. When the great lion Aslan is put to death by the evil white witch upon the stone table, in place of Edmund Pevensey, the traitor. But the stone cracks and Aslan comes back to life. And the next morning, Susan and Lucy Pevensey hug his mane and gasp, what does it all mean? And Aslan, this is a shortened version, says, it means that although the witch knew of a deep magic, there was a magic deeper still that she did not know. That when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. The hour for this moment has now come. God's judgment will fall on sin. The time is coming and is now here. It's time for judgment of sin and for Satan's authority to be stripped from him. The power of sin will be broken and death itself will start working backward. Consider how amazing this is. What's in view here is not just the final judgment, but it's the final judgment in light of the judgment of Christ. 
By receiving this judgment, Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 15 that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Because Christ took our judgment for us, we share in his final victory in the resurrection and also in the final defeat of the devil. And continuing in verse 32 in our text, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus would be lifted up from the earth in a very physical sense, on a cross of wood, where he would, he, would, he would hang until he died. And through this act and through the spilling of Jesus' blood, Jesus creates a new covenant in his blood. A covenant for Jews and Greeks, the people of Israel and Gentiles, for you and me if we believe in Jesus. And through the cross, Christ would draw to himself, as John records in John, excuse me, in Revelation 7, what he pictures to be a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our Lord who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Can you see how the glory of the son of man is displayed in his provision of salvation? We see in these verses, in this middle section, verses 27 through 33, our second point that the glory of the son of man is displayed in his submission to the father and in his provision of salvation. And now we turn to our third and final point this morning. Point number three, the glory of the son of man is magnified when we believe in the light of Christ that we may become sons of light. This comes from verses 34 through 36. And there's a final interaction here between the crowd that was gathered and Jesus. And so in verse 34, look at there. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Well, without any additional context, a reader of this verse might take this to mean, um, you know, maybe it's a, an ancient proverb. Uh, but, I'm, but I'm sure that you can see that it's much more than that. Let's rewind to just before Jesus began his earthly ministry. Again, we're thinking about this idea, walk in the light while you still have the light. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. It's not just a pithy saying. It's not just a a comment about walking about in daylight and how that's easier to see than walking about at night. No, there's something more. And I want to provide some of that context for us. Uh, if you're like me, I've, uh, you're, you've missed a number of our sermons along the way. And if you don't go back and listen to them, you might miss a few of these in the book of John. And so a couple to highlight, one longer one and two shorter ones. So the writer of this book, the Apostle John, describes the ministry of John the Baptist, different Johns, someone who was teaching and baptizing people before Jesus even came on the scene. And we're introduced to John back in John chapter 1, 6 through 13. There was a man, John the Baptist, sent from God, whose name was John. He came to bear witness, to bear witness about the light. 
that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which which would give light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What's my point? There, the light that the Apostle John has in view here is not just any light. It's the light that is coming into the world. And in John 8, verse 12, Jesus claims this title, saying, I am the light of the world. And in John 9, verse 5, Jesus remarks, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so as the hour draws near, perhaps the people start to sense. I hope that you start to sense what's about to take place here. He says it plainly. The light is among you for only a little while longer. And while you have the light, walk in the light, lest the darkness overtake you. But like we already realized, this this is not just a proverb, a thoughtful remark about common experiences of walking in light or darkness. No, Jesus moves from teaching to preaching by using an imperative, a little grammar word for us. So can you spot it? It's in verse 36, our last verse here. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you're a young person, a teen or a young adult, or maybe a preteen. Maybe you've come to church over the years on and off. Maybe you've had questions along the way. Perhaps you haven't had the kind of spiritual awakening to God that you've seen in other people. I've had conversations with young people over the years who feel like God doesn't speak to them. Can you relate to that? That, that perhaps they, they say prayers out loud, but they don't hear a response. And so they ask, is God real? And does God really care? And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I think this message is particularly for you. God wants you to know that he sees that he knows, that he cares, and that he speaks to you. He speaks to you right here through his word, through the Bible. Do you want to know what God says to you today, what he's saying to us today? He wants to deliver us from the greatest trouble the world has ever known and that you will ever know. Jesus will go on to say in John 16, 33, that I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you may have trouble. You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Therefore, Jesus says here in John 12, verse 36, believe. Believe in the light. This is not a suggestion. It's not a self-help message. How do we know God? How do we know peace and joy and experience these things that we've always longed for? How do we discover the purpose for our lives? How can we be freed from the darkness without and the darkness within? Believe in the sun. Believe in Jesus. Believe in the light. This kind of wholehearted belief, this faith that Jesus is talking about here, has an ultimate goal. The whole incarnation story 
of God becoming a man has an ultimate purpose. The glory of the Son of Man is magnified when we believe in the light of Christ. Why? That we may become sons of light. This is the culmination of God's salvation plan for you. Think about this. Early early believers who followed in the the way of Jesus were called little Christs or Christians. And and maybe this is a little too elementary, but but think about this. What makes someone a Christian? What, What gives them that label? It's not that we attend a local church or that we say no to extramarital sex or that we read our Bibles regularly. Though all of these things are in keeping with being a Jesus follower. What makes someone a Christian is that we believe in the light. We believe in Jesus who is the light. The son of man is the one who died and rose from the dead for our sins. So the son of man gets the glory. The son of man is the one who submitted to the father and provided salvation for us. So he gets the glory. The son of man is the one who makes us sons and daughters of light. So he gets the glory. Yes, the glory of the son of man is magnified when we believe. When we believe in the light of Christ that we may become sons of light. And verse 36 concludes our passage. With one final statement, it says that when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And next Sunday, Josh Kruger is going to help us look at what comes next as Jesus concludes his public ministry and approaches the hour that is coming and is now here. Well, in case you were wondering, here's how my daughter Addison's trip went. (laughs) The hour finally came, the time had come to go see daddy in Oregon. There were hours spent in the van, in a parking garage, in a hotel, a bus, two airplanes, and three airports. She had to wear a mask. Her brother wailed at times due to air pressure. There was turbulence, lines, and yes, at one point she even lost her lunch. It was a long and difficult journey. But she had, along with her brother, their mother, and their grandparents with them every step of the way, guiding them, guarding them, directing them, and safely delivering them to Oregon. And at the end of the day's journey, Addison got to be with her daddy. Recall this morning Jesus' warning about loving your life more than you love God and the life that God has called you to live. Are you all in? Or are you dragging your feet, watching television and filling your days with other self-seeking activities when God has good work for you to do? Fruitful labor. Are you holding back from dying to sin? Or are you prepared to be fruitful for God? Jesus walked this path before us. He submitted to the will of the Father. He was all in, even to the point of death. He died. But he's also resurrected and he calls us to follow him, to serve him, to die to sin, to live to righteousness. So let me ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the light? And does Christ magnifying, light magnifying behavior mark your life? Does it affect how you steward your time or or who you spend time with or, or the ways that you serve or do not serve? I think it would be most appropriate to say a well done to the many believers in this church who have set a really wonderful example 
to young people like me of what it looks like to believe in the light. I want to thank you for being those examples to me. Those conversations over the years with me and other younger believers is how God keeps us faithful on this journey. So keep doing that. Keep believing. Our lives as individuals and our life as a local church should be about this one thing. As C.J. Mahaney and other, other teachers and authors have said over the years, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. So what's the main thing? It's the good news that if we repent and believe in Jesus, we will be saved through Jesus. And it's why John 12, 20 through 36 was written for us. Because the hour has come for the glory of the Son of Man to be revealed and displayed and magnified in the cross of Christ. And before I pray to close, I want to read from Psalm 24. This is a Psalm of David. It's very common, but I want us to think about Jesus as I read this Psalm. Because I think this is how we might magnify Jesus and seek Jesus and say, I want to see Jesus. Well, let's see Jesus in this Psalm. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, only Jesus, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord. Yes, he will. And righteousness from the God of our salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. We're invited in because of Jesus who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Do we want to see Jesus? And so David finishes the psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the opportunity for us to gather and hear you speak. Thank you that you speak. You are not silent. God, in response to this word that you've given us, help us to see and savor the glory of the Son of Man, our Messiah, our Savior. Help us to repent of our sin and our self-deceiving justifications that keep us from fully following and serving King Jesus, the King of glory. Help us to believe in Jesus, to hold fast to Jesus, so that when the days get dark and the path is difficult and the seasons are long, You will bring us home. Thank you that the hour has come for your name to be glorified. Be glorified in us, we pray. Amen.